We continue on today in the book of Ephesians. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 4. And in particular, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 14 today. So turn to Ephesians chapter 4, look at 11 through 14. And as you get there, how do you talk to a child? How do you talk to a child? How do you talk to an infant? Um, Some people choose to talk and baby speak, right? We We do things like, oh... Goo goo ga 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 ga, right? And we we kind of mimic them in a way of what they're able to produce. And so we talk in a kind of baby speak to the babies. Others choose to talk to infants or children in full sentences as though they were talking to anybody else. And when we consider this question of how do we talk to a child, how do we talk to an infant, we should also consider the aim of our communication with them. That is, what are, what are we trying to accomplish in our communication, right? What is the goal of which we are trying to attain to? Or what are we trying to teach? Now, of course, that question is answered differently depending on whether that child is ours or somebody else's, right? So a, a friend or an acquaintance or a stranger talking with our child might talk to them Uh, in baby speak, because they don't really care if the baby actually ends up speaking. Whereas parents might choose to use clear words, concise words, and full sentences because they're trying to teach their child how to speak, right? So sometimes when when they're growing up and they say uh, cute little phrases or words because they can't put their tongue in the right spaces, uh, the right spot to uh, say the word appropriately, and we think, oh, that's just cute, um, we may correct them, right? If we're a parent, we may correct them and say, no, that's not how you say that. It's not straw babies, strawberries. Say it, straw, berry, strawberry, right? And we may, we may try and help them. We may instruct them, right? As a stranger, they may not care. They just say, oh, that's so cute and go on with it. And the reason for that difference is, right, as a parent, you want your child to mature. You want them to be mature. You're training them to be an adult. At least that should be the goal. And as we consider the church, as we consider the people of God, as we consider the gifts that Christ has given unto her church, we ought consider this question as well. What does Christ want to see in us, his people? What is he trying to work in us? What's the goal? Well, today I want us to see in our passage out of the book of Ephesians, That God's gift of leadership to the church is for the benefit and growth of the church. God's gift of leadership to the church is for the benefit and growth of the church. And I'll just pause here and say as a reminder, when we talk about the church, we're not talking about a time of the week. We're not talking about a location. We're talking about a people. So God's gift of leadership to his people is for the benefit and growth of his people. Well, let us read our passage this this morning and attend ourselves to it. And remember that this is God's word. So what I'm about to read is not my thoughts on these matters. This is God's word on this matter. So I pray you receive it as such. Ephesians 4 starting in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
So Paul opens up chapter 4 by calling the church to walk worthy of the calling to which they have been committed. And part of that calling, walking worthy of that calling, is walking in unity, right? An eager striving for unity within the church. And last time in looking at verses 7 to 11, we had come to the realization that Christ doesn't just command unity, but he actually provides for unity within the church. Uh, he cares so much about unity within, within and among his people that he actually does something about it. He acts by giving grace in due measure. That's verse 7 of chapter 4. He acts by giving gifts, uh, and that's verses 8 to 10. And in the context of, those, of the passage here, right, the giving of the gifts is the giving of unity itself. So not only does Christ command unity, but he actually gives unity, and then he calls us to maintain unity. We should not miss that unity is a gift of God, even as we are called to and commanded to strive for it. And then we come to verse 11, and this verse 11 is not so much about the giving of individuals' spiritual gifts or calling them to a certain office, as we might consider in other portions of the scripture, like 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, where we see uh, particular gifts of grace given to particular individuals for a particular purpose. But what we find in verse 11 is that one of the gifts of unity that Christ gives to his people are, is, ministers. That one of the gifts is indeed godly, and good leadership. That's what Christ gives to his people for the sake of unity. And so today, what we do is, what we're going to do is unpack what exactly this means for us in the church. What does it mean that Christ gives ministers of the word to his people? And how do these ministers act as gifts for the church? So let's look first at verses 11 and 12 and consider first for the work, for the work, verses 11 and 12. So we begin in verse 11, and again, the argument that we understand this verse, the context in which we want to understand this verse is that Paul is not writing that individuals get spiritual gifts. That's true, but that's not the point here. It's that the church receives the gift of leaders uh, by, from, by and from Christ. Right, these ministers of the word are themselves given to the church. They're part and portion of the gifts that Christ gives to his people. And when we consider this verse last week, we thought about the reality that as we consider the leadership of the church global, we realize not everybody who is within the church, uh, who calls themselves pastors or whatnot, are good. Right, Some leadership within the church is evil or abusive we might call them wolves what's the purpose of a wolf when it comes to sheep to get a snack and just to rhyme it along with little bo peep right they want to destroy they want to tear but as we consider that that doesn't mean that christ has failed and is giving good gifts to the church so I want us to understand that. I want us to be clear that what Christ gives to his people is good, even if we see examples that are seeming to the contrary. And we might say that those people hold their position not by virtue of Christ giving them to the church as a gift, but maybe Christ gives them to the church as a condemnation, uh, as, as unwise leadership. Or maybe they install themselves in the church. Or maybe Satan has something to do with their being in the church and in the position they are within the church, right? So there's, there's layers here. But what I want us to understand, all that to say is, so we may come to this verse 11 and say, we see apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers and say, well, those are negative things. And indeed, if we look at the, the history of our culture, leadership is often negative. Institutional leadership is definitely negative. But we can't come to this passage and understand it in that context. What God gives is good to his people. And so we ought 
see these groups of ministers in a positive light. This is a good thing. A godly leadership is a good thing. And I know, again, that the struggle of our culture is no leadership is good. No authority is good. But that's not what the scripture says, and that's not what Jesus intends. So we have to be challenged in these things. And I'll pause here to say that you should ask of your leaders or anyone who would be leader over you what their aim is. What is their goal? What's their goal for the church? What's their vision for the church? What's their, what's their goal for God's people? What's their goal for you? And what should their goal be? So, so I, I say that you should ask that, but how do you know that they give a good answer? Well, that's what we want to see in our passage today. What does God's word say? And we see in verse 12, the first kind of three related, although uh, slightly distinct, uh, aims or goals of why Christ gives these groups of ministers to his people. And look at that there. It says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So three related aims, goals, and let's walk through them. And by the way, this is this is this was the goal of the apostles and prophets in the early church. This should be the goal today of evangelists and shepherd teachers. So I argue there first. I want us to uh, pay maybe closer attention to that, is that this is what all these ministers of the word should aim to do. That includes evangelists. Sometimes we have this idea, perhaps, in the Christian church about an evangelist is kind of like this lone ranger, and he goes out in the field and he just does his work, and it's, he's kind of detached from uh, a local body of Christ. I don't think that's biblical. And indeed, what we see here is that's not biblical. That kind of understanding is not biblical. That the evangelists should be equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, as much as a pastor or teacher is. Okay, so understand that this is all together, and this is the aim and goal. So let's walk through these. First, to equip the saints, or your translation may say something like our perfecting of the saints. The word there is this idea of fully preparing or training someone or qualifying them. The goal of the ministers of the word is that those whom they teach, those whom they preach to, those whom hear them, those whom they shepherd and lead, those whom God has given unto them, those to whom God has given him to them, because remember, they're a gift to the church. That their aim, their goal for those people, God's people, is that they would be fully complete and lacking in nothing. That they would be qualified. So in the case of a young Christian, this means, and do you remember the Great Commission, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. So in the case of a young Christian, a new Christian, it's discipling them. It's training them. It's teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded. In the case of those who are straying uh, from their walk with Christ, so those who are in sin and living in sin and not still walking in sin and not walking away from it, not repenting of it, not turning from it, not struggling against it, they ought to bring back such persons into a right relationship with God, right? That mean, that's what it means to fully perfect them, fully train them. And by the way, church, this is a responsibility for all of us as believers, right? We are all responsible in one sense to hold each other accountable to the things of Christ. We have a responsibility to call one another to account when there appears to be unrepentant and open sin. But we should especially expect this of our pastors. They should be the ones who are willing to point out issues of sin and call for repentance. Now, when I say that, they should not be willing to pick a fight. 
or to use a kind of old-timey word, to be pugnacious. We saw that in the book of Titus, by the way. Right? That they shouldn't be ones who are, who are just ready to quarrel, ready to confront at every moment. We're not talking about nitpicking. Uh, we're talking about clear issues of sin and calling them out in a loving way. Why? Why should ministers especially be ready and willing to do this? Because that's their calling. That's their calling. right? Because they want to fully equip Fully train the people of God, the saints, right? The holy ones. Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 1.28. Remember that Colossians is a kind of sister letter to the Ephesians, so we shouldn't be surprised that we see overlap here. And here's a part of this overlap. Paul writes to the Colossians about himself. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone... And teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So what does Paul do to equip the saints? To perfect them. We see there, right? He proclaims Jesus Christ. He warns them. And he teaches them. And his aim, his goal, is maturity in them. And I pray that my ministry to you would be this. I want to see you as mature Christians, fully equipped, fully trained, qualified in every way, ready for every good work. So first is to equip the saints. The second aim or goal of the minister of the word is for the work of ministry. And this is to say that the goal of the Christian is ministry. And what is ministry? Are we talking about Vocational ministry, that is a job of ministry, uh, such as what a pastor may have. Are we talking about ministry in a formalized, programmatic sense? Like when we talk about churches, right? We have children's ministry, we have youth ministry, etc., etc. No, we're talking about most simply service, right? So for the work of service, for the work of serving, Ministers work in preaching and teaching the gospel that every Christian may be equipped and ready for every good work. Which, by the way, Paul says, and when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, that this is the, what scriptures do. This is what the scriptures do. Right? They're good for all these things, including <laughs> making everyone ready for good works, equipping them for good works. Good works are what we are called to in Christ. Christian, you are called to good works. Not as a uh, way to earn your salvation, but as a fruit of it. We see this reality throughout the scriptures, but let's take a look at a couple of examples. Uh, In our own letter, Ephesians 2.10, Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are created, believer, for good works. Titus 3.14 Titus 3.14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul writes to Titus and urges him, uh, Titus himself, to model good works. That's Titus 2.7. But he also instructs that he should instruct the churches to be ready for good works. Recently, a case of urgent need arose. And Cynthia, Cynthia and Stephanie both stepped up to help meet that need. And we thank God for his grace at work in them. And so uh, they were ready for that urgent case of need. Romans 12, 6 through 8. Romans 12, 6 through 8, right? We're, we're called to good works. We're called to the work of service. We're called to the work of ministry. We, are, we ought be ready for it. And ministers... Make us ready for it. 
But Romans 12, 6 through 8, we talk about spiritual gifts here. Having gifts, Romans 12, 6 through 8, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. What's the point? Whatever your gift of grace, use it. Your spiritual gifts aren't given to you that you can hold on to them and keep them from yourself. The spiritual gifts given to you aren't for your benefit. They're for the edification of the church. And it's my goal, and I think I could say it's Jack's goal, that you would be ready, willing, and using your gifts for the furthering of the kingdom of Christ. That's the aim. That's the goal for the work of ministry. The third thing here, back in Ephesians 4, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And we come back to this building metaphor, this growth metaphor. We've seen it already in the book of Ephesians. And all that to say is we could say this, that growth is the goal. Growth is the goal. And now I want to define that for us because we can quickly get it wrong and we can go down wrong paths when we think of growth is the goal for the church. Uh, Not too long back, I read the book Planting by Pastoring by Nathan Knight. Planting by Pastoring. And the author's aim, Knight's aim in that book was to redefine what it means to plant a church. And he goes in the introduction, he points out, he says, if you go look at the survey of church planting books and you kind of take a survey of them, they all kind of center around the same theme. The most popular books on church planting center around the same thing. And that is numerical growth, do it quickly, and then multiplication growth. Start spreading, like start having more sites and more services and more churches and you should you should plant churches to plant churches. And is it good to plant churches? Yes. Is numerical growth good? Yes, it can be. But the point that he is making in that book is that to say that that is the goal of a church is to grow numerically is to misread the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Growth in such mindset is one of numbers, right? People, budgets, baptisms, number of buildings. However, what we should be most concerned with, what the scripture is concerned with, is not how many people a church has, but how deep in the scriptures are those people. In other words, are the kinds of churches that we are producing, that we're planting, are they creating mature Christians? Because we come to our passage here and we see that the point of evangelists, which some argue is church planters, by the way, the point of evangelists, the point of shepherds and teachers is their goal just to get as many warm bodies in one location at a time. And the answer to that is no, right? Here the scripture clearly says that their goal is equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, let me say this too, right? I want, probably not as much as Christ wants, but I want all of the elect to be saved because that's God's purpose. That gives God's glory. So we should be concerned about people. But it's not our first and foremost concern. Or certainly it's not our only concern. Our concern is what kind of Christian are we creating? And by the way, that's a question that we have to answer as a church. That's a question me and Jack deal with as we we meet and discuss what we're doing as a church. What kind of Christian are we creating? What kind of disciple are we making? 
And when we consider that qu question, as we look at our, our answer here that the scripture gives us, we realize that right there, fully qualified Christians, Christians who are busy about the work of ministry. The building up of the body of Christ is the goal, which means building them up in Christ. If we get a bunch of people together and call them Christian, but they don't know who Christ is, do we have a bunch of Christians? We have Christless Christians. We just have Ian's. Right, so we, we build them up. And what's the point of building them up, right? What are we aiming to? Again, we look at Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 22. Ephesians 2.22. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What are we creating? What are we building? A temple for the glory of God. A temple, a place of worship. Right? That place is not a location. It's a person. It's you, Christian. Right? So the point of being built up is not that we may have a larger ministry or location or influence. It's about worship. And we'll look at that further as we come into this next verse. So let's first see that ministers of the word are given to the church for the work. And now let's press in further and see how they are given for the maturity. Or if you want a bigger, harder word to spell, or for the maturation. But for the maturity, verse 13. Until. So let's just point out this is the end. This is the goal until this is the aim until what? Until we all let's just pause there and say, who's all all Christians until we all this is a corporate end. This is a corporate goal. It's not an individual goal. It's for all of us. So my goal as a pastor is not that I may make one good, fully qualified disciple. So we all would be fully qualified. So let that encourage you, brothers and sisters, to keep moving forward. Keep learning. Keep studying. Keep challenging yourself. Keep killing sin. Keep reading and meditating on and memorizing the scriptures. If you believe that you have arrived in your knowledge and in your faith, you clearly haven't. And if you don't understand that, talk to me afterwards. I'll explain it further. Until we all attain what? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And secondly, of the knowledge of the Son of God. So the unity of the faith, first, this unity is the unity of the content of the faith, not its exercise. So we're talking about Right doctrine. Right doctrine. We believe right things about spiritual things. It may be well and true that we will all die with some bad doctrine, but that's not our goal. Right? That should not be our goal. That's not my goal as a Christian. It should be yours. Rather, we strive to know the things of God. We, we study to show ourselves approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and that's not just for ministers. That's, just not, that's not just for pastors, teachers. That's for all of us. We continually strive to conform our understanding of the Word of God to the Word of God. We don't strive to conform the Word of God to our understanding. So I'm going to say the first one again. We continually strive to conform our understanding of the Word of God to the word of God. We try to conform our minds to the word of God, not the word of God to our minds. And let's be honest, there are difficult things in the Bible to understand. Right? There are hard things to understand. There are some cryptic statements which we struggle with. Go to the one that uh, we sometimes talk about, maybe too much in jest, but about head coverings. It's because of the angels. We all know what that means, right? We, we all get that one. 
Or we could go to um, Peter's letter of him, of Jesus seemingly going into hell, like we discussed a little bit last week, going into hell to preach to those in captivity. And what does that mean? That's one understanding. I don't think that's how we should understand that passage, but that's how some people do. There are hard things to understand. There are challenging things, but we don't give up on the challenges. We study, we strive, we learn. We listen to faithful men who preach the word of God. That's what they're there for. They're there to help us in the challenging things of the scriptures. So unity of the faith and also knowledge of the Son of God. Uh, Knowledge of the Son of God until we attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. And if we're talking in the unity of the faith kind of more broadly, more generally about the things of the scripture, here we narrow in and we talk about Christ, Jesus, that we seek to, to specifically and necessarily understand Jesus and his work. That's one of the reasons, men, we've been studying what we've been studying on Tuesday nights, because we want to understand and know more about who Jesus is. And I think I could say all of us at some point or another during the course of this study thus far have confessed to struggling with understanding Jesus or one aspect of Jesus's ministry. We're, we're not saying that we don't know about it, but that we don't know about it, that we don't really understand it in its fullness and we don't live our day-to-day life in light of it right so when we talk about this knowledge of god this knowledge of the son of god we're not just talking about information we're not just talking about data points we're talking about knowing him intimately which is to say that we understand who he is i'll just ask you do you know christ jesus do you know who he is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or we might say that another way, that Christ Jesus so loved the world that he gave his only life. For whom? For whom did Christ give his life? For whom did the Father give his only begotten son? Sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And may we pray, God, give us knowledge of Christ. May he fill our minds with thoughts of our Savior. Because Christ is lovely. He is better than thousands of others. He is wonderful and beautiful. He says of his own heart that he is gentle and lowly. He approaches sinful man with tender-heartedness, patience, compassion, long-suffering, love. Now, to add to that, we have to understand that Jesus is also fierce in his judgment. He is terrifying in his glory. A kind of somewhat amusing uh, example of that is on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, John, and James are there with Jesus, and Jesus is transformed into his glory. And there's Moses and Elijah talking, and Peter speaks up. But Peter speaks up because, and the scripture says, because he doesn't know what else to say. He's like, he, he's afraid, he's terrified, and he just blurts out something. And some of us can identify with that, right? Sometimes we just blurt out things, and we're like, why am I so stupid, and why did I say that? But I think Peter had that moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, because he saw the glory of Christ. He didn't know what else to say. So he said what he could. Right? He is fierce, and he's going to judge all sin. Christ will pour out the wrath of God on all sinners. So make no mistake. I'm not talking about an effeminate boy here when we talk about Jesus. But I'm talking about he who is truly God and truly man. So come and follow Jesus and learn from him. Seek him. Because friend, I will tell you that you will never regret a day, an hour, a minute spent in pursuing, knowing Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. But how much in this world is worthless? Mm -hmm. 
and how much we seek to benumb ourselves to the things of God. May God have mercy on us. The ministers of Christ are given by Christ for the sake of his people. God gives leaders to the church for the benefit and growth of the church. Jesus gives leaders to you in the church for your benefit, that you may have a, a unity of faith, that you may know Jesus deeply. And I would be remiss to not to not say that part of what is entailed here has to be what Paul has written in the book of Ephesians, right? Ephesians 2, about the, the Gentiles being brought into the people of God. So, right, necessarily what we're talking about here is the mystery of the gospel. That is Christ making one people out of two. That's part of the knowledge of, of God. Part of the knowledge of the Son of God. And what's the aim of all this? Well, we get two kind of pictures at the end of verse 13. First, we have to mature manhood or mature adulthood or maturity, however we want to uh, refer to it there. And then the second is to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And both these images center around this idea of adulthood, of full growth, of being uh, mature. You want to know what a mature Christian is like? Well, it's someone who has unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. It's a, a woman who is fully trained and equipped for every good work. It's a man who is active in the use of his spiritual gifts. It's a people who are deep in their communion with God. And faithful in their commitments to Christ. So a different version of the question I asked at the start, how do you talk to a child? Well, what's the goal of, uh, what's a parent's goal in raising their child? And again, it should be maturity. It should be adulthood. It should be a man or woman who is ready to step out into the world, properly trained, able to work, one who can take care of their family. So let me encourage you parents to consider what you want for your children. Often we want little things, worldly things, right? We want them to clean up their room. And that's a nice immediate goal. But what's the larger goal? That when they grow up and they have a place of their own and they don't have mom or dad there telling them, clean up your room, that they do it themselves. And they're not living in a trash heap. Right? Often we want our children to be successful, make a lot of money. And leaving aside whether or not that's a good goal, how are you training them to be successful? So that if that is your goal, how are you working on them so that they are successful? Have you taught your children about the value of money? Have you taught them how to wisely spend it? Or we might say the inverse of that, how to wisely save it. Have you taught them a good work ethic? Have you taught them how to cook and clean and fend for themselves? Have you taught them the necessary social skills to succeed in the world? And by the way, as I list all those things off, you might think, well, that's someone else's job. Like, that's the school's job. The school's supposed to get them ready. And often our culture kind of tells us that they they say yeah that's what school is for school is preparation for the real world let me go ahead and tell you school is not preparation for the real world school is preparation for more school you can do really well in school and fail at life so school is not preparing us for the real world i mean uh, we I, I won't rant too far on that but you could go into what do they even teach in school uh, there used to be a day and age when they teach home economics. I think maybe some of that's coming back now. Teach them how to balance a checkbook. I mean, basic financial uh, life skills. And we kind of say that that's the school's job. But it's not. If you're a parent, mom, it's your job. That it's your job, it's your responsibility to make sure that your children are able to step out into the world 
because you can't do everything for them. You cannot prepare them for every situation in life that may arise, but what you can do is instill in them principles that they will need to succeed in life. And again, I've left that question of what does success mean very open-ended, but I can tell you it's not a fat bank account. And of the most importance, have you taught them who Jesus is? And what it means to love and follow him. And parents, if this fills you full of guilt or shame or anxiety, fear, worry, don't stop there. Go to God and ask him for forgiveness. Ask him for grace. Pray that God would give you grace to teach your children well. And if you've not started any of those things, Start now. If your work has lain fallow for many years, it may be very hard work that you have ahead of you. But doing something now is better than continuing to do nothing. Start where you can and go from there. To bring this back to the church, because that's what we're talking about here, my goal for you, church, is maturity. And I want to see you mature in your thinking and actions. I want to see you approach the word of God in a mature manner, eating solid food and not sipping milk. Let us heed the admonishment of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5 verses 12 through 14. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. He writes, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And I would just say there, how do you train a child to walk? Constant practice. Mm -hmm. By the way, we still practice that to this day, right? Even if we are adults, we still practice how to walk. We shouldn't take it for granted. But the author here writes, uh, of Hebrews here writes, that by this time you ought to be teachers. And I don't think what he's talking about there is a formal office of teaching within the church. I think he's just saying more generally, You, as Christians, should be able to teach others. You teach them what you know about Jesus. So, parents, that's you teaching your children what you know about Jesus. This is the broad teaching we all do, right? Older older women to younger women. Older men to younger men, as in the book of Titus. Neighbors to neighbors, etc., and so forth. And the aim is maturity. The aim is solid food. The aim is that that what we produce in others is a mature Christian who is then able to produce that in others. The aim is maturity. It's the kind of maturity which understands the things of God, that knows the difference between good and evil. And that's important as we get to our next verse. It's the maturity that sets aside self and considers others as more important. It's the adulthood that sacrifices out of love for others. And so I'd ask you, are you on your way to maturity? Are you growing in maturity? Teenagers, it is possible for you to be more mature than us old folks. Paul writes to the young man, Timothy, right? Show yourself to be an example. Don't let them despise your youth. Don't let them say, ah, he's a young, immature child. He doesn't know anything. Rather, show them. Show them that you are a mature man or you're a mature woman. So ministers are for the work and for the maturity. And let's consider our last verse today. They're for the doctrine. For the doctrine. 
verse 14. In Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children, or so that we may no longer be infants, tossed to and fro by the ways and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So here we have the contrast to the maturity Paul just wrote about. Right here we have immaturity pictured. And when he says, so that we may no longer be children, I don't think what he's writing here is about a particular issue within the Ephesian church. I don't think that they're particularly immature in their understanding, but it's a warning to them. It's a warning to those who are young in the faith there. And it's a warning to us today. The aim of all of us in Christ is that we may no longer be children. We want to be mature adults, not children. Because what happens to infants in the faith? Paul here describes they're tossed to and fro. They're carried about by every wave. They run here and there and everywhere in, in accord with the doctrines that they hear. And one of the ways, by the way, we can judge our own maturity. So I asked that question, are you maturing? One of the ways that we can judge the level of our own maturity is by how quickly and easily we are persuaded about things once we are convinced or convicted of them. So if we quickly change our convictions, it may well be a sign of immaturity. And I want to be careful here unless we fail in, the, in a different direction. And so what I mean by that is this side of heaven, we will have bad theology of some sort. And so we all have areas where we need to grow mature in our understanding, in our unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. So we're always undergoing growth, right? The church always reforming. Why does the church always need to be reformed? Because we always need to be growing in maturity. We haven't arrived there. We always need sharpening of our understanding. We likely won't get to that full maturity this side of heaven. But there is no valor in clinging to false doctrine just because we were taught it a long time ago. What am I saying? That there are times and seasons when we realize we have been taught falsely, and so we need to grow in our maturity, grow in our understanding of the Bible, and change what we believe. We see this throughout church history, by the way. One of the preeminent examples of that is Martin Luther. He was taught by the Catholic Church certain things. And when he was convicted of the scriptures, he said, here I stand. I shall do no other. Because he was convicted by the scriptures in clear reason about the things of Christ. Right? So he didn't just hold on to old doctrine because he said, ah, I learned that a long time ago. That's what I've been taught for years. So I'm going to hold on to that. But he also wasn't tossed to and fro by every wave that came his way. If we are chasing after every wind of doctrine that blows past us, we are immature. We are unstable. And when I use that word doctrine, what we're talking about is, is merely, it's a point of faith, right? A point of understanding uh, something we believe about God or about his word or about creation. And let me just digress for a moment and say that doctrine is not bad. Theology is not bad. There's kind of, in some uh, areas of Christendom, of Christianity, of our, even in our community, there's this idea that intellectualism, reasoning, logic, as it comes to the scriptures, is bad, evil, or wrong. And so theology is bad. Theology is a bad word. Why would we study theology? That's bad. But doctrine and theology try to express in concise ways the truths of the Bible. So, for instance, we don't see the word Trinity in the Bible. But when we are convinced by the scriptures that there is one God and that one God is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, guess what we have? A Trinity, a triunity. By the way, we find hints of Trinitarianism in the book of Ephesians itself. So we use that word Trinity 
as a point of doctrine, as a point of theology, to express concisely what we mean. And also so we can go up to someone else and say, you believe in the Trinity? Oh, I do too. Let's, let's talk about that. Now, again, we always have to define these terms with others because some take that word and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. And so we have to be careful with this. We're not always using the same language, even if we are using the same word. We need clarity in our doctrine. So doctrine is not bad. Theology is not bad. If we think that, we need to go back to the scriptures because that's immaturity. It's really, it's a, it's a form of immaturity. Now, we have to deal with this issue of what is the difference between a pastor, a pastor teacher who stands and preaches the word, we're convicted by it, we're convinced by it, and we adopt a differing view of doctrine, of a doctrine or understanding about the scripture. And that can be in a good direction or it can be in a bad direction. So what I mean by that is we can hear someone explain the word to us and be convinced differently about a doctrine than what we were taught before. And that can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. It can be being carried about by every, uh, by every wind of doctrine. Well, we first have to understand that there is one faith. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Or we might ask, well, why does Jude write his letter? And it's this issue of one faith. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We could go to Galatians and see where Paul writes about those who begin to preach another gospel. And he says, there, not that there is another gospel, but they say that there's another gospel and let them be accursed. And if I came to you and I preach a different gospel to you than I preached the first time, let me be accursed. And why does he write so strongly? Because there is one gospel. There's one faith. All this to say that then there is also false gospel. And false faith, right? False doctrine. And so consider the end of our passage here, right? By human cunning. How do they do this? How, how do these false teachers preaching, teaching, lead people astray? By human cunning. By craftiness and deceitful schemes. There are those who make a living peddling false doctrine. There are those who call themselves pastors, preachers, shepherds, elders, bishops, apostles, prophets, and all manner of other titles and appellations. And what they preach is not the word of God, but cunning craftiness. They further deceitful schemes. They teach by trickery. I think of those stories, and in particular, uh, of uh, a pastor that was describing situation that occurred in his church of a man who fell under the sway of false doctrine, and then he took others with him into that false doctrine. Right? He took them into the churning waves of false teaching. How easy it is for us to be carried away by false doctrine, especially when we're immature in the faith. And this is why we must be careful with those that we promote to lead us. This is why we ourselves have to be faithful students of the word. Do not take for granted any point of doctrine that I preach or teach, but see if it is true in the scriptures. Mature believers aren't easily moved in the things of the faith. 
And we might consider it this way. If you come to the scripture, your study of the scripture, and you find an interpretation that nobody in the course of 2,000 years of Christian history have understood the passage in that way, let me go ahead and give you a good hint. You're probably wrong. You're probably wrong. So God's gift of leadership to the church is for the benefit and growth of the church. And so what does that mean for you? Well, brothers and sisters, it's essential that you listen to sound teaching. It's essential that you listen to sound teaching. It's vital that you're involved in a church that preaches right things. If you should go out of this community, you should find a church, by the way, which is part of our church covenant, you're part of this church, that you'll find a church of like practice and faith. You find a church that preaches the gospel faithfully. And to that end, we have to heed what the Bible warns us about, which is false teachers. Listening to false teaching is not a benign act. It's not neutral. In other words, you may deeply harm yourself by listening to bad teaching. How do you identify false teachers? How do you identify bad teaching? Well, it takes study. It takes searching the scriptures to see if these things are true. It takes evaluating their motives. Uh, the problem is we can't ask, okay, what's your motive? What's your goal? Go up to them and say, what's your goal for me as a Christian? What, do, what are you trying to do in your preaching and in your teaching? And listen to what they say. But don't only listen to what they say because they can say one thing and do another thing, right? They could be hypocrites. So not only listen to what they say, but also then compare what they say to what they do. And further realize, beloved, that Christ's goal for you is maturity. It's my goal for you. I want to see faithful men and women who's, who know their Bible well. I want to see you busy about good works. I want you to be faithful in using your spiritual gifts for the edification of the church. If you are in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have a spiritual gift. So what is it and how can I help you in equipping you to use that spiritual gift? And I really encourage you. Challenge me in this. Come up to me and say, hey, my spiritual gift is this. How, what do I do? I mean, I have an answer for you right away. But let's pray through it and let's study those scriptures and let's figure it out and let's send you forth to use that spiritual gift for the edification of the church. We all have varying levels of, of maturity. It's, we're not, we have not arrived. But some of you may need to be goaded into reaching for maturity. The extended adolescence, that's this immaturity that extends well into adulthood, may be common in our culture. It may be appealing. Who doesn't want to not work, wake up late, and play games all day? That sounds like a dream, right? Well, the reality is the person who doesn't want to do that is a mature adult and may be fine for a vacation but it's not how we want to live our lives. Why do I say that? Because we realize that there's something better than these things. There's something greater than irresponsibility. There's something better than immaturity. And while we may want that, while our parents may assist in that, while our culture may be fine with that kind of idea of extended adolescence, such is not found in the kingdom of God. You're called, you're commanded, and you should be growing in maturity. Immaturity in our faith is not just a failure. It may actually be very dangerous. It might speak of a deeper issue. Paul writes to Timothy, warning him in 2 Timothy 3, 3 or 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. For the time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions 
and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul knows that there is a present danger in his own day that people would reject sound teaching and set up for themselves men who would flatter and tell them whatever they wanted to hear. If that was true in Paul's day, it's certainly true in our own day. There are many who go by the name of pastor who flatter and never say a quote-unquote mean word. But friend, listen to me. Those men may sound appealing now, but their words lead to bitter evil. For all who fail to see Christ Jesus, and by the way, that's the Jesus of the scriptures, not the Jesus of our imaginations or wantings, not the Jesus that is inoffensive, but the Jesus of the scriptures, for all who fail to seek him will die in their sins and be cast forever from his presence. Don't listen to those who tell you that hell's not real or that love wins in the end, so what we do doesn't really matter. Don't listen to those who tell you that God is fine with sin. And by the way, on the other end of the spectrum, don't listen to those who prom promise you that if you follow this rule or that rule, if you keep this fasting and you uh, whip your body this many times and you do penance, God will accept you because of your hard work that you'll get into heaven. It's on both sides of the spectrums. But realize what the scriptures say here, that there are those who are cunning and deceitful. There are men who preach with deception and they lead to hell. But listen to the words of Christ Jesus. Listen to the words of God which say to you, repent and turn from your evil. Turn back to God. Be wretched, weep and mourn. Seek God while he may be found. Rest in the finished work of Christ, which is sufficient to cover all your sins. Trust in him. Believe in him. Hold to him. And then follow after him. Lose your life that you may be find it. For he will set you free, and you will be free indeed. And in short, all this to say, admit your sin before God and believe in his finished work in Jesus Christ. Believe in the sinless life of Jesus, his atoning death, his justifying resurrection, and his glorious ascension. And confess him as your Lord and Master, and you will be saved. And then seek out God, good teaching, godly teaching, sound teaching, study the scriptures, grow up into full uh, maturity in Christ. And by the way, don't do those things alone. Christianity is not a private endeavor. Rather, come together with the body of Christ and let us all seek a mature faith in Christ. Let us pray. Our great Father in heaven, Lord God, we thank you for the gifts that you give unto your church. Father, we thank you for those faithful men and women who have gone before us and who have taught and instructed us. Whether, Lord, we have heard their voice or whether we have read the words on the page that they have written, Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for your inspired word, uh, that which you have given unto us to know these things and to understand these things. And Father, help us to do so. Help us to understand. God, put it, Put within us a deep and lasting desire for your word. Father, give us an excitement about it. Father, let us see you in it. Let us see our Savior in ever clearer measure. Let us hear the words of the Holy Spirit who inspired these words. Father God, we pray this because... We know that you are glorious and good, that you have loved us with an eternal love in Christ Jesus. Because if we are in Christ, you have chosen us from before the foundation of the world. And so we bless you, Lord God, and we want to know more about you. We, we desire to know more of you because you, Lord God, are lovely. Because you are beautiful and wonderful and glorious and holy. And Father, we want to know you. 
not our imaginations, not, not that which our culture describes as you. But we want to know you. We want the real thing, the genuine article, not imitation. So, Father, we pray that you would be near unto us, that you would draw near unto us. Father God, that we would know you better. Father, that we would be mature Christians acting in ways that we ought, believing the truth and never departing from it. Father, help us to this end. Father, we pray indeed for your help to this end because we know without your help, we shall perish. We shall fail. We shall fall. And Lord God, we pray for those in our midst, those whom we love, uh, those in our homes and those in our workplaces, those in our neighborhoods and those in this, this community around us, God, who are deceived those who are deceiving and those who are ignorant of the truth of Christ. Father, we pray for your spirit to give understanding, to open blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears. That They would turn to you, Lord God. That they would believe in Christ Jesus and be saved. And Lord, then we pray that you would help us to come alongside them and to disciple them, to teach. That they may be mature in Christ. And Father, we pray, we pray this, that you may be glorified in us and in all things always. And we pray this for our good. In the name of Jesus, amen.